Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible. I'm Evan. And I'm Aaron. And this is a podcast where we read the Bible together every year and talk about what we learned along the way. If you'd like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and look up the Grove Church in Marysville, Washington, and you can find our plan there. We also have the plan available on our website, grove.church. And if you are jumping in, Aaron. Cannonball. I know. I, I, Just kidding. I pulled the trigger on this last week. It was wrong. <laughs> This is the final week where we are in double digits. This is day 99. It's it's the final day. That's true. As you're listening to the final day. Easter Sunday, day 99. After that, we're moving on to the the trippies. So there you go. Yes. Welcome. Glad you're here. So if this is your first time listening to the podcast, you'll know where to find uh, the the week's reading. That's why we say the day uh, that we are jumping in on, day 99. Uh, And if you have any questions along the way, uh, whether you are a first-time listener or a regular listener, uh, like you know, we like to answer questions as much as we can week over week. So send us those questions. There's three ways that you can send us the questions. And for clarity, they don't have to just be about what we're talking about. You can ask us any Bible question, any faith-based question. We will try and spend time to answer those questions diligently. Uh, And so we love to do that. Three ways. One is an email. Info at grove.church is the email address. Make sure to put a uh, podcast question in the subject line, as well as you can jump on the socials. We have a Grove Church Facebook page and we have a a Grove Church Instagram um, account. The handles for both of those are the Grove CH. Uh, You can DM us both there as well. Maybe. All right. Well, this week we are starting up the book of First Samuel. I feel which... like we have like a ton of things to cover this week is what I feel like. Yeah. Even as I was putting there like, oh my gosh, I got more. So uh, not a bad thing, but there's a lot here. We're in the, uh, yeah, It's we got a little bit spoiled with the law books where, you know, <laughs> you're true. kind of like, you're condensing four chapters into like, hey, here's the amount of, you know, cubic feet that the tabernacle was and here's the weight of the bronze and the yeah, silver that was used for We just kind of skimmed over it. those. Yeah. And now we're in, we're in the narrative. We are talking about everything that is going down. So it's a good it's a good time. And also I'm I'm excited for I think this is the part of the year where the chronological plan that we're doing is going to really shine. So the if, if you're it's really going to shine. Yeah, if Bling. you're if you're jumping in, uh the idea of the plan this year that we selected is that we're reading the Bible in chronological order. So the order of the things that they actually happened, uh where I think that's going to be the most impactful is when we get through most of Samuel, but especially when we get into Kings and Chronicles all of a sudden, all of the prophets are going to be jumping in and we're going to be hit with all of them. Yeah, exactly. So we're going to be reading a story and then we'll actually be reading the prophets at the time and what they were saying. So I think it'll help us understand it a little bit more. Uh, But as a quick reminder, this is the case of 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, and 1st and 2nd Chronicles. All three of those were one book. And I shouldn't say one book. They they were all three separate books. Uh, the reason they're divided into ones and twos is because scrolls. So scrolls, yep. you couldn't, there was the basic- a scroll. Yeah, you couldn't make a long enough scroll for it, so they divided up into two. And as it made its way into, you know, modern books, we just kind of kept it divided into two that way. But don't read 1st and 2nd Samuel as if 2nd Samuel is the sequel to First Samuel. They're all it's all one story. Um, unlike Luke and Acts, where one actually is a sequel to the oh, other one. That's a little teaser for later in the <laughs> later year. Later much later in the year. That's true. Uh, and then it's technically anon- anonymous, but tradition holds that Samuel and Nathan are the primary authors, which I think is just kind of fun to think yeah. about. Obviously, who knows? Well, but... it, it figures. I mean, Samuel, the main character, and then it shifts to Nathan, who's yeah. the main prophet. You'll see why Samuel certainly was not the author of all of Samuel, because he, uh, he does he does die. Yep. <laughs> so, spoilers, but you know, nothing. Well, his final speech comes up. 
That's true. And our week's reading this week. That's fair. All right. Well, in chapter one, we meet Elkanah and Hannah. Uh, they are, you know, this is going to shock you listeners. Uh, Hannah's barren and unable to have what? children. I know. This never comes up. <laughs> so uh, Hannah prays and she asks for Yahweh to, I, I love the way she phrases it, remember your servant. Um, and so, and, and allow her to have a son. Um, she promises that if she has a son, that she would make him a Nazarite, or she would have him take the Nazarite vow. Uh, remember back, and this one shouldn't be as hard to remember because we just talked about this last week with Samson, but it is uh, the Nazarite vow is a special vow that was made by Israelites to set themselves apart for God. Um, there's a bunch of different rules. The mm. most famous one is don't cut your hair. Looking at you, Samson, <laughs> or you know Delilah, well, I guess. Technically, he didn't cut it. That's true. Te- so. He didn't shave his own head, but hey come there, on. Delilah. Which is funny because I don't know, like, I, you know how like, you just kind of have pictures in your head of what different biblical characters look like? I've never pictured Samuel with super long hair, but that's absolutely- I haven't either. You're right. absolutely what he looks like. So he, yep. he, he, he'd he never cut his hair because he's a Nazarite. So there you go. I, well, it's interesting too, like in the position of the of 1 Samuel, as you see uh, Judges ends with- Samson's failure. He was the last judge. I guess the book doesn't end, but the judges end right. with Samson's failure, who was supposed to be a Nazarite. Samuel opens up with the one who upheld the Nazarite vow. Like he he did what he was supposed to do and honored God through the vow he made. Uh, so I, I don't know if I've ever seen that 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 juxtaposition of both of those. Yeah, before, that's a good. So. Samuel but is the Samuel is the better Samson, and Jesus is the better Samson and Samuel. Ooh. Whoa! All right, so mind blown. Uh, the Lord has mercy on her, or literally, it's, it says the Lord remembered her. Uh, he grants her request. And Samuel is born, and he is dedicated to Yahweh. And after he is weaned, he is taken to Shiloh with Eli, uh, who is the judge of Israel and also the high priest at this time. So, and I guess I always forget. Which is where they, the the high priest became the judge when there was no judges. The high priest was in essence stepping in as the judge for the there you go. the short duration of history. And so it's kind of interesting to me too because I always think of I my mind always defaults to the temple, and I have to remember the temple's not built yet. Nope. Tabernacle. <laughs> yep, this is the tabernacle, and it's not in Jerusalem. And it's it's right. built in Shiloh. Yep, it's not right. It's not in Jerusalem. Right, yep, it's Shiloh. right next to Jerusalem in mm-hmm. a city called Shiloh. So there you go. Uh, Hannah sings a song of thanksgiving after this all happens. And I, Evan's going to sing it for us right now. Just kidding. Yeah, I was like, I was, I was trying to think of how to fake it. And I was like, ah, <laughs> that's not happening. Uh, I guess to rewind a second. So we're told that. Elkanah has two wives. Uh, one is named Peniah or Penina. I don't know how to pronounce her name. And who cares? She's a jerk. And then there's wow. Hannah. Oh. Uh, and Hannah's the other wife. It talks about how uh, Peniah, Peniah, Penny, Panera, Panera. <laughs> talks about how Panera always makes fun of Hannah. Um, and Patty yeah, Manny. essentially because like, oh yeah, I have a bunch of kids. Oh man, it's it's a bummer that you can't give our husband kids. Like she's kind of just being a jerk about it. And so, uh, and that's where it says that Elkanah gives Hannah a double portion because he loves her and and, and feels bad that she yep. can't have any kids. Before or she has kids. Yes. Yep. Or as we learned last year from a question that came in, the actual Hebrew is he gives her a portion of two faces. And so we're, uh, we're not actually 100% sure on what that means. It could theoretically be that he's giving her a lesser portion as well, but who knows? That's if you, if you're interested in that, I don't know the episode off the top of my head, but someone sent in a listener. So a listener sent in a question where it was like, hey, my translation says that this is a half half portion. What's the deal with that? So we went through and answered there. Well, it probably came from the ESV. So how shots fired. Dare Just you. kidding. Uh, so to read a little bit, a little bit of the song of Hannah, we're not gonna read the whole thing, uh, but I, I can't help but thinking of who she has in mind during some of these things. So it says, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. Let the 
for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him his actions are weighed. I love the line, my mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Or in other words, where Panaya or Panera, as I guess I'm just going to call her now because she's not going to come <laughs> back up again. Uh, but as she she's deriding Hannah for her lack of children. Hannah is rejoicing in her salvation. She's rejoicing in what the Lord has done. And by and by doing so, that is how she is deriding her enemy. So I love that I love the way that she frames it there. Uh, later in this chapter, we are told about the sons of Eli, who are worthless men. Uh, that's the same word that's used to describe the Jephthahs, is what it made me think of, Jephthah's men, when he leaves Gilead. Uh, yeah, except Eli's sons, I mean, I don't know. I guess we don't get too much info on Jephthah's men, but they seem like they're worse. Um, they're essentially worse versions of the sons of Aaron. So remember back to, oh man, Leviticus? Yes, yeah, in Leviticus, where Nadab and Abihu are Aaron's sons, and they are flippant with the offerings. They don't do things the exact way that Yahweh has commanded, and they are they are killed for it. God makes an example of them to show how seriously the priests are to take their role. Um, Eli's sons flippantly deal with sacrifices. They also corruptly take meat that was meant to be offered to God. So they, they, take, they cut some of the different portions off, off for themselves. Um, they're, you know, they're kind of sleeping around. They're just not, they're not great. Um, and so God tells Eli that his sons will be killed and Eli doesn't seem that shocked by this. He's like, yeah, that, that checks out. I get it. Uh, in chapter three, we get the famous story of God speaking directly to Samuel. So this is a few years later after he's born, obviously, um, we are told in the version that the word of or in the setup to this story, that the word of Yahweh was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision, which, I mean, it makes sense. If you're reading through Judges, remember, this is all taking place essentially right after the book of Judges. So this is not like the people have repented and they're serving the Lord again and everything's great. Um, no, this is this is in the throes of, in those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what he thought was right. And so we're getting, we're getting that as well. Um, and so Samuel, you know, he gets woken up and he hears someone calling out his name. And he goes to Eli and he's like, hey, you called me. And Eli's like, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. And then it happens a few more times. And finally, Eli realizes, oh, this is the voice. So, of, this is the voice of Yahweh, which I, I guess in my head, it makes sense that he's so hesitant on it because like, it, it tells you in the setup that the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. Uh, and, that, and that is also lead into, remember the verse in Proverbs where it says, where there is no vision, the people perish. That's what it's talking about. It's talking about the, the inspiration of the Lord. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Eli wants Samuel to tell him what happened. Uh, Sam, Samuel is a little bit, you know, he's a little bit hesitant because God told him that, hey, yeah, all of Eli's sons are going to die and, I'm, and they're, they're, they won't be forgiven. <laughs> and <laughs> so much. he's like, hey, Eli's like, hey, what did God tell you? And Samuel's like, uh, well, I mean, you know, he's like, Eli's like, hey, if you don't tell me what he told you, may it happen to you instead. Because oh. Eli knows like, okay, this is bad news. Yeah. So Samuel tells him, and Eli, to, to Eli's credit, I mean, he's not the best guy, but he's definitely not... Um, He's accepting of it. He's like, yep, that makes sense. Like, I messed up. My sons have messed up. It's not really a... He doesn't try to fight this at all. Uh, Sometime later... The Philistines battled against Israel. That's that. That's going to be a theme in a lot of in a lot of what we're talking yep. about for a while. Uh, the Israelites decide to bring the Ark of the Covenant to help them win the battle, um, and so they're you know they're 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 losing, and they're thinking to themselves, "Wait, let's go get the Ark and bring it here." Then. God will totally be on our side with this. It reminded me of Micah and the Levite, where remember in Judges oh, yeah. in chapter 17, Micah's like, he's doing a bunch of bad things. He's stealing, he's made household gods. And then he finds a Levite and he's like, oh my gosh, I'll make this Levite my priest. And then God won't be mad at me anymore. And that's kind of the vibe I'm getting here where they just think like, 
you know, obviously we're not living correctly and we're not worshiping Yahweh. But if we bring this box, then uh, all of a sudden he he has to he has to favor us. So, um, and in in fairness, the Philistines are pretty afraid when this happens. So this is in First Samuel chapter four. It says, as soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid for they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us. Nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptian with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Pause. Uh, you know, the Philistines, not perfect here. Obviously, they don't realize, they're, they're saying it's gods, plural, not just the one true God. Um, but at least they're giving him credit for actually driving or driving away the Philistines, unlike a certain, you know, group of Israelites who wanted to give the credit to a cow, but whatever. Uh, and then it says, take courage and be men. O Philistines, <laughs> lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as as they have been to you, be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled every man to his home. And there was a great, very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell and the ark of God was captured and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas died. So there you go. It's it. The Israelites think, well, now that we've got the ark with us, we can't, we can't lose. And God's like, uh, no, that's not true. So they they lose. They lose pretty bad. And Eli's sons are killed in the battle. Um, Eli, who at this point is blind, is waiting by uh, the gates to hear news of the battle. And when he's told that his sons are dead, he doesn't really react because, again, he knows that this is going down. He's, and and I, I think, again, he's he's very understanding that that that's, makes sense. But then he's told that the ark has been captured and that the ark is no longer, it's no longer in Israel, which Eli being the high priest that makes sense that he would freak out about that. And he actually fall, he completely falls out of his chair and he breaks his neck and he dies. Um, and again, I think you have to bring yourself into, into the life of what it was like to be in Israel at that time, especially the high priest and the ark. You just lost the ark. Yep. The ark is gone. That is a huge deal. Uh, after this, the Philistines take the ark back to their temple where a series of unfortunate events just keep making... For them. Yeah, for them, not for us or not for the Israelites. Uh, they just keep making things worse. So the Philistines not only send the ark back to Israel, uh, they send it along with a guilt offering <laughs> and giving Yahweh glory. So essentially what happens is they bring the ark into their temple um, and one thing leads to another. Eventually they go and Dagon, their God is bowing down to the ark. And it's like, oh my gosh, let's put him back up here. And they come back and then Dagon's been completely ripped apart and still <laughs> bowing down. Take that. I love that. I just don't, I guess I do to a certain extent understand it, but like it never occurs to the Philistines of like, you know, maybe we should ditch Dagon and worship this Yahweh God. He seems like he's really got the... He's really got the power. Now they, they don't really do that at all. Um, and, but then, yeah, they send the ark back to Israel to like, we don't want any trouble. And they also do it with a sacrifice and they give Yahweh glory. They say that he is, he is the greatest of the gods. So there you go. In chapter seven, we get back to Samuel. Remember him? The guy that the book is named after? Who's that? Uh, he begins his judgeship over Israel and he does a really good job. So the people put away their false gods. They worship Yahweh alone. Uh, the Philistines once again make make war with Israel, but God miraculously drives them away. So the people cry out to God for deliverance. And again, like we see in the book of Judges a bunch of times, um, God wins the battle. It's not the Israelites. And basically Samuel would be 
I don't know if it wasn't for what if it wasn't for what happens with the kings. I feel like Samuel would be a footnote judge where he did one cool thing, and then other than that, he just did a good job. And usually, that's what makes you a footnote judge is if you if you don't mess up really bad, you get a couple sentences. If you mess up, then that gets kind of laid out for all of the people to read. So fun times there. In chapter eight, we see Samuel fall into some of the same traps as Eli. Uh, so he appoints his sons as judges over Israel, which is a first. Uh, normally, the judgeship is not a hereditary title. And so remember back in in the book of Judges, Gideon is offered something similar. I think he's offered to be king, but essentially yep. the idea of um, having hereditary power passed from person to person. Gideon's like, no, we're not doing that. Now his son, on the other hand, he was Takes like, he's like that, sounds, that sounds great. Why don't I kill all my brothers while we're at it? Um, and so Samuel is, he's making his sons judges over Israel. And then his sons, they don't seem to be as bad as Eli's sons. We don't get like the full paragraphs listing out all the evil things that they do, but we are Good told job, that Samuel. they, yeah, but they, we are told that they don't walk in the yeah. ways of Samuel. So they're, which is speaking of themes that we see in the Old Testament. Great men with really crappy sons, that comes up a lot. <laughs> that is, uh, there's like two kings of Judah where they're they're both okay back to back. And I can't remember, is it, it's Uzziah and his son, right? I think those are the two where they're both like, they're both, they're both it. Or is it Asa and Jehoshaphat? Jehoshaphat's not Asa's son, is he? I don't remember. I don't remember. Uh, well, here's the deal, listeners. Well, we're getting into kings soon, so we'll know. But for the most, like, if you think so of- So just delete that from memory. If you think of the greatest kings of Israel, though, you think of David, you think of Hezekiah, and you think of Josiah. All three of their sons are horrible kings. Do not follow in the ways of their yeah. fathers. <laughs> Solomon, we, we, I, know, I think we have a Sunday school vision of him, but he's he leads the people away from worship of God, and he does such a poor job that God's like, yeah, you know what? You get to, like- because of David, I'm not going to do this while you're alive, but the kingdom's divided now. Yeah. You guys are the worst. Um, Hezekiah's son is Manasseh, who is just the, worst. the freaking worst king of Judah. Uh, and then Josiah's son is just weak, and he's one of the last kings of Judah because they can't um, they can't hold on to the kingdom at all. So we see the theme of great men with poor sons come up time and time again in the mm -hmm. Old Testament. And I guess it is a reminder of the importance of, remember what's Moses getting after in Deuteronomy, teach these things to your children. Do not let them forget about it. And yeah. we can see that even the people who are closest to God's heart, they, they forget to do that. Um, so yeah, there you go. So the people, they're kind of fed <laughs> up with this. They're older, mm -hmm. or Sam, sorry, Samuel's older. And they're like, you know, this whole hereditary judgeship thing, Samuel, we're not about that. Now, hereditary kings, on the other hand, that sounds- That's a different conversation. <laughs> that sounds great. Um, and so in 1 Samuel chapter 8, it says this, Then all of the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old. Okay, first off, whoa. Offensive. <laughs> Come on, guys. Uh, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And That's a Lord, good response. Yeah, always good. Like I said, Samuel's a good guy. Uh, and the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day that I brought them up out of Egypt to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only shall you solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. And so you see in this moment, Samuel's like, okay, guys, like if this is what you want, 
we can do this, but keep in mind the king, he's going to take taxes from you. Yeah. He's it kind of it kind of reads like they're living in like I don't know, libertarian paradise. And then Samuel's like, look, <laughs> we can have a government if you guys really want to, but here's what's going to do. But he talks about, it's like, they're going to have a bunch of land, all the best land. The king's going to take that. All of your sons, they're going to get drafted into the army and the king's going to go make war. He's kind of laying out like, hey, listen, this isn't just like rainbows and unicorns. There's going to be some really unfortunate things that happen. And the Israelites hear all that and they're like, yeah, but we want to be like the other nations. Sign us up. Yeah. Why, you know, I don't know, like Amnon's, Mom lets him have a king. Why can't we have a king, Samuel? So oh, sad but true. It happens. Uh, they ha- they appoint a king, and uh, you know, Aaron. I wonder how that's going to turn out for them. I, we'll find out. Yeah, I guess we'll we'll <laughs> we'll find out about the first king here in a second. But before yeah. we do, uh, before we talk about that guy, we do want to remind you to leave us a five star review if you haven't had the chance to already. Um, it does help get the review or get the show out there to more people and grow the community of everyone reading the Bible together. And if you leave a written review on Apple Podcasts and maybe one day Spotify, if they ever let us do written reviews, uh, we Hashtag will tag shots fired. Come on, Spotify. But we will read it on the air just like we're doing for. Lauren Ivy one two three. Whoa! So yeah, thank you for a review. Uh, it, and and let's just be honest, it makes Evan and I feel better about ourselves sometimes when we're recording the podcast. It's true that we have listeners who enjoy it. So uh, you write, and we just want to say thank you for your review. It says I was looking for a podcast that read the books of the Bible aloud. Uh, we don't necessarily do that, but she says specifically on the life of Paul. And as I've been reading about his life, was fascinated with his story. They didn't read the whole book of Acts, true, uh, as I was originally searching for, but they did talk about his life and gave different takes, which was really helpful and enlightening to think through as I listened. Thank you so much. Uh, well, you're very welcome, Lauren, and we thank you as well for leaving us a review. So if you've not had the chance to do that yet, or maybe you keep saying you should do that and you haven't done it yet, uh, consider it an Easter present for us because it is Easter Sunday today. An Easter so, basket. We would love for you to do that. Um, we're going to continue through the book of Samuel here. Uh, we're going to pick up in chapter 9. Uh, and we see in chapter 9 and 10 that we're introduced to the first king. His name is Saul. Uh, and and I love what First uh, Samuel says about him, and I quote, it says, he was an impressive young man. There was no, no one more impressive among the Israelites than he. He stood a head taller than anyone else. Uh, and so that's the first introduction we get with this man named Saul, who was a son of Kish. Uh, and after this introduction... We then get the story uh, where he goes to find his father's donkey because his donkey want, donkey's wandered away. He goes with his servant. Uh, they're looking around, can't find him. The servant says, hey, I know of a, of a, of a, uh, a prophet, a seer uh, in this town. Let's go to this town. So they go to the town. They find out that the, the prophet's there. That's the prophet Samuel. So Samuel and Saul cross paths in this moment. Samuel then uh, is informed uh, and all this has happened in chapter 9 and 10, is informed that Saul is to be king. He sees Saul from it approaching, and, and the Lord says, hey, that's going to be the man you're going to anoint king. Uh, so then Saul, or Saul is then invited by Samuel to have a meal with him. He has a meal with him. Uh, and then Samuel, in essence, prophesies that, hey, the donkeys have already been found. You're going to have people approach you, uh, and so I'm going to send you on your way. As they were leaving, uh, Samuel then tells Saul, hey, send your servant ahead. I want to talk to you for a minute. Uh, Saul talks to, to Samuel privately. Saul is then anointed by Samuel. You are going to be the next or the first king of Israel. Uh, and he gets anointing. He is anointed. And then he sends him on his way. 
And this is just a snapshot of kind of what's said to Saul from Samuel. We see this in chapter 10, verse 6 through 9. It says, the spirit of the Lord will come powerfully on you. You will prophesy with them. You will be transformed. So in essence, what's happening is Samuel is then providing clarity on a series of events that are going to take place. Um, and and so he says, one of the last signs is that you will, the spirit of the Lord will come on you. You will prophesy, and then you will be transformed. And then he says in verse 7, when these signs have happened to you, do whatever circumstance, your circumstances require because God is with you. Afterward, go ahead of me to Gilgal. I will come to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice fellowship offerings. Wait seven days until I come to you and show you what to do. Ironically, the seven-day waiting period uh, comes back to bite him in a different instance where he's supposed to wait seven days because that's about the duration of time you're supposed to wait for the prophet to arrive. Teaser. So we'll we'll see that in just a short little bit. Um, Samuel then tells uh, him to go wait after these things were fulfilled. We see in chapter or verse nine, when Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed his heart and all the signs came about that day, which I love that phrase because um, there's some interesting things about Saul that I don't know if I've ever picked up on before, um, but he seems, and, and, and I don't want to get too far ahead of myself here, but he seems a little hesitant to want to be king. But uh, we see further in chapter 10, I'm going to read this as well. Um, this is where it's the first inclination that I see that there's this hesitation maybe. Um, but Samuel at this point calls all of the tribes together. He's going to call forth Saul to be king. Uh, and we see this. It says, Samuel had all the tribes of Israel come forward and the tribe of Benjamin was selected. Now, remember if you in Judges, Benjaminites, Benjaminites were left-handed for the most part. They were warriors in the hand. So just kind of a fun little tidbit to remember from last time. Hey, my people. Uh, your people, bro. Were you from Benjamin? Just kidding. <gasps> no, you were from Tom. Um, the tribe of Tom, the the tribe of Westerfield, uh, tribe of Benjamin was selected. Then he had the tribe of Benjamin come forward by its clans and the Matrite clan was selected. Finally, Saul, son of Kish was selected, but when they searched for him, they could not find him. They again inquired of the Lord, has the man come here yet? The Lord replied, there he is hidden among the supplies. He's anointed to be king, but he's hiding among the supplies. This, this is kind of an interesting introduction to Saul being anointed king. They ran and got him from there. When he stood among the people, he stood a head taller than everyone else. So he's a big dude. Samuel said to all the people, do you see the one the Lord has chosen? There was no one like him among the entire population. And all the people shouted, long live the king. Samuel proclaimed to the people the rights of kingship. He wrote them on a scroll, which he placed in the presence of the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people home. Saul also went home to his home in Gibeah, and brave men whose hearts God had touched went with him. So we see in chapter 9 and 10, we're introduced to Saul. He's anointed king. Um, but the interesting thing, he's not confirmed as king yet. That comes in this next section uh, where he's not just selected in chapter 11. We see these not just he's selected uh, and anointed by, by Samuel, but he hasn't been confirmed in this regard yet. Um, until it, but then he delivers people from his hometown, Gibeah. Gibeah, sorry. Um, and when Saul's hometown is then attacked uh, by the Amalekites, Saul then grabs a, an ox, slaughters it, sends it to all of the, the tribes of Israel and says, whoever doesn't show up, you will be just like this ox. So the Israelite nation rallies, they show up and are ready to fight. Um, and so they defeat the Amalekites. Uh, maybe it's not the Amalekites, that's another kingdom they fight, but they they fight, they win. And then there's a group of men, once Saul was anointed king, that had said, and I didn't read this on purpose, but they came out and some were joy, said, long live the king. Then others said, Saul shouldn't be our king. Uh, so there was <gasps> dissension already amongst them. And and why were they dissension? Why were they dissenting? Why were they rejecting Saul already? I, I do wonder if it has something to do with his 
desire to not be revealed as king. For whatever reason, he was head and shoulders above everybody else. He was anointed king by Samuel privately, and then then he went to his hometown Gibeah uh, after he was then confirmed publicly as or called out publicly as as king. But he was hiding among the supplies. He wouldn't be a guy who would be among the supplies. He he was a guy. He knew what was coming, uh, and so he was a little resistant. So he had a group of guys that were or, that were anti King Saul, um, not his king. And so the the reality of this tension is, after he is confirmed publicly by as by his the victory he led uh, the Israelites in, and in, in, uh, in essence re- redeeming and refining and recovering his hometown Gibeah's stuff. These guys that called him out said he shouldn't be king are then said, hey, bring him out. We're going to kill him. Who said Saul shouldn't be king? Let's bring him out. We're going to kill him. And they're brought forward. And Saul says, uh, no, we're not going to kill him today. The Lord has brought victory to the Israelites. So he, in this moment, shows mercy to a group of guys who didn't who said he shouldn't be king. And it's interesting to note, not just in the tension of him hiding from supplies, but he heard before he left his hometown to Gibeah, he heard these guys mention he shouldn't be king. And it says it says in the in, in the passage of scripture. And I guess I should have put it in because it's part of the story, but it says that he did not say a word about it. It says he heard, but he didn't say anything about it. In other words, if he's rightly the one anointed to be king, if he's rightly the one that's supposed to be king, anybody who comes out against the king is supposed to be put to death. Is supposed to be punished. And it's a moment where the king shows his authority and shows his weight and then backs up the fact like, hey, you're you're coming against me then. If you say I can't be king, you're coming against me. But Saul did nothing. He said nothing. Um, and this was, it was viewed as weakness. Uh, and so you've got this picture of weakness uh, to, to what Saul had did. And then he shows mercy on top of that because God brings uh, victory to the to the Israelite people. Uh, so we see in chapter 11, this whole story play out. Uh, chapter 12 is a shift for a moment um, to Samuel's final speech. It's his last time he's standing before the Israelite people and directing them and communicating to them. He talks about and reaffirms the blessings for obedience. Um, he reaffirms the, the cursing for not being obedient to staying faithful to the Lord. Um, and Saul is affirmed as king again. Like there, there's this moment where it's like the last hurrah uh, that Samuel is leading God's people as, as the judge. He's handing the baton because Saul is now king. Um, and, and so this chapter 12 is kind of like the last like reminder of now still be faithful to God. You wanted a king, here's your king, but you got to be faithful to God because if you are, God will be with you. He'll provide victory. He'll bring all the things you need. Um, and then he kind of fades away a bit. And then we see chapter 13 where I just simply said this, things turn bad. Oh, Saul. Uh, very quickly, it's, uh, you get a snort, a, sh- a snort, a short snapshot uh, of Saul being saying he was turned 30 when he, was, when he became king. Um, so he's just a young little whippersnapper. Uh, Evan, that's old you are, right? Thank you. I should um, be king of Israel. I got you, bro. Uh, and so we see this in 1 Samuel chapter 13, uh, verse 8 to 14. It says, he waited seven days for the appointed time. So in other words, he's getting ready to go to battle. And as customary, he waits for the the priest. He's waiting for Samuel, the prophet, to come in and offer sacrifices to gain God's favor and approval for victory for the battle. So he waited seven days for the appointed time that Samuel had set, but Samuel didn't come to Gilgal, and the troops were deserting him. So Saul said, bring me the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings. Then he offered the burnt offering, just as he had finished offering, of course, of course, just as he had finished offering the burnt offering. Who shows up? Samuel. 
And so Saul went out to greet him. And Samuel asked, what have you done? Saul answered. When I saw the troops were deserting me and you didn't come within the appointed days and the Philistines were gathering at Michmash, I thought the Philistines will now descend on me at Gilgal. I, have to, I haven't sought the Lord's favor. So I forced myself to offer the burnt offering. Here's the thing about Saul that I'm learning as I've read through this again and again and again. He has a, it does a really great job of convincing himself that the choices he makes are the right choices. True. Yeah. He does a really great job of saying, I, hey, he, he, what's the word? He, he's deceitful to himself. I forced myself. He knew what was wrong. He should have just not done it. But he lives with this deceit that he, he never gets rid of. Uh, and it will come back to bite him in the end. So Samuel said to Saul in verse 13, you have been foolish. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. Now remember Sam, Samuel's last speech. Let's call him Sam. Remember his last speech. Be faithful to the Lord. Do what the Lord says. And then already in chapter 13, we see, and some time had passed, but we see that Samuel comes back and says, you've been foolish. You've not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. It was at this time that the Lord will per- have permanently established your reign over Israel. This is an incredible statement, Okay. Samuel says, it was at this time, if you would have remained faithful and waited patiently and Samuel got, or Saul got afraid because his his warriors started deserting him, which again, already shows some of the, the, the fragility of Saul's kingship. They were already deserting. They weren't going to battle. The Philistines were gathered and ready to fight. But if he would have just waited, Samuel says, God would have established you permanently over Israel. And then he says this in verse 14, which is sad. But now your reign will not endure. The Lord has found a man after his own heart. I wonder who that could be. And the Lord appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not done what the Lord has commanded. And chapter 13 ends and there's this, this, this broken moment. I love in chapter 14, we get kind of a blip of, of positivity. Jonathan, who's Saul's son, uh, has victory over the Philistines. This is where he takes his armor bearer. He sees a, a Philistine garrison up on a, up on a hill. And he tells his armor bearer, hey, let's go uh, take this. If, and if God is for us, he will, they will respond, come on up here and let us teach you a lesson. And so he makes himself seen by the Philistines. They respond, why don't you come on up here? And so then his armor bearer in this moment, before the Philistines see him, says, if you, it's one of the famous phrases that I've read in Jonathan and his story, his armor bearer, his armor bearer says, I'm with you heart and soul. Let's go take over. Let's go take on the, the Philistines. It's just... One sword, that's Jonathan's sword that his armor bearer is carrying. He probably has some kind of weapon of some sort. But they both go up, and I think it's about 20 or 30 guys of the Philistines that they take on and, and kill that day. I think one of the one of the saddest what-ifs in the Bible is, what would King Jonathan have been like? Like, if Saul hadn't have held hmm. out, if Saul, if Saul would have held out... I feel like obviously this is all not as good as King David. Who knows? I feel like I feel like <laughs> King Jonathan would be in that top tier of kings that we talk about, or at least hmm. or at least in that next one. And again, like I said, yeah. this is all projecting for sure. Who knows? Speculation. Uh, but the dude follows the Lord. He is intensely loyal. He does the right thing. He's even, humble. Even, yeah, he's humble, even when it means standing up to his father. We'll talk about that here in a little yep. bit. But I, oh man, King Jonathan. He would have been, he would have been a really good one, I think. So it yeah. is it is a bummer that the sins of his father end up taking that. Yeah, taking out his legacy. Yeah, yeah, it ruins the legacy of Saul, um, and there's no lineage in the throne anymore. Um, so so Jonathan has victory. He comes back. Saul is pursuing the Philistines. He makes this ridiculous command where he says, "No one's allowed to eat until we defeat the Philistines." 
Jonathan's not around in this moment because his father didn't know that he snuck away with his armor bearer. Jonathan shows back up and he's hungry. And the troops are hanging out in the woods. There's uh, uh, honey from bees. And Jonathan dips his spear, his sword or whatever in and eats some of the honey and he's rejuvenated. Um, And then he's asking the question, why is anybody eating? Well, your dad made a law that if anybody eats before we beat the Philistines, they're to be killed. And so then all of a sudden, Jonathan's like, that's ridiculous. Everyone should eat. So they eat. Saul finds out. He's livid. He says, who's the one that initiated this? And they said, Jonathan. Jonathan, your son's the one that did this. And Saul's like, I got to follow through with my word. Like, And that was part of being king. The moment you decreed something is the moment you're stuck to it. And we see this all throughout the Old Testament with different kings. We see it even, even today. Once once yeah. a decree is made, it has to be carried out. Esther famously is the one where it's kind of at its, it's, at its forefront yep. of taking that to the extreme. Yep. And Daniel and the lions then is another one. Like yep. there's they make a decree and then they have to follow through. Um, like there's no out. You can't, you can't get away with it. Even in the movie Aladdin, there's this moment like, no, I'm just kidding. Am I Sultan or am I Sultan? Jafar? Um, anyways. So Jonathan's life is on the line. His people cry out, why does Jonathan have to die? Can't he just live? Uh, and so Saul, in essence, had made the oath was based upon defeating or conquering the Philistines in that moment. So he relented to the people and then stopped pursuing the Philistines. And then we get this little blurb, blurb of uh, a summary of Saul's kingship. It says this in chapter 14, verse 47 to 52. It says, when Saul assumed the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies in every direction, against Moab, the Ammonites, Edom, the kings of Zobah, and the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he caused havoc. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but he caused havoc. He fought bravely, defeated the Amalekites, and rescued Israel for those who plundered them. Saul's sons were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malkishua. The names of his two daughters were Merab, his firstborn, and Michael, the younger. The name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam. Oh, I missed that one up. Ahinoam. Daughter of Amhan, I'm not even saying that. If one. you just say, it with I was doing so good. People will um, believe you. The name of the commander of his army was Abner, son of Saul's uncle Ner. Saul's father was Kish. Abner's father was Ner, son of Abiel. The conflict with the Philistines was fierce all of Saul's days. So whenever Saul noticed any stronger, valiant men, he enlisted them. So you get kind of a summary in an overview. And Saul did good job. I mean, he he conquered and defeated. Um, and he was the the bummer is he was constantly at war, um, and and even more so. He, he wasn't faithful. He he kind of led in his own little way, and it was kind of a problem for most of his, his kingship. Um, and then we have this one sad moment. Like, we already know that Saul was, was rebuked by Samuel uh, because he performed, he forced himself to perform sacrifices. Um, and, and then Samuel alluded to, your kingdom will not endure. He wasn't rejected as king yet. He just was then told someone else is going to reign that's not in your family. And then we have this moment in, in chapter 15, which I, I would say is probably the saddest moment of Saul's life, his saddest moment of his kingship. Um, and he was, in essence, he was rejected um, because he didn't uphold God's command um, and they held, because they held on to the best of the Amalekites. So they're fighting the Amalekites, they kill out, they kill all the people up, but they, even like the, all of the animals, all of the people, except the, the best of the animals and livestock. And they held on to them. Uh, and we have this moment when, Samuel again confronts Saul, uh, and this is where it's it's heartbreaking because then you have these moments in this chapter where Samuel is is responded to by the Lord, and he's he, Samuel's weeping bitterly because of God's rejection of Saul. But it says this in verse thirteen, chapter fifteen. It says when Samuel came to him, Saul said, "May the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions." 
And then Samuel replied, then what is the sound of sheep, goat, and cattle I hear? In other words, Saul was told and commanded to kill everything of the Amalekites. But he didn't. He kept the best of it for himself. And then, again, this is where he deceives himself. Uh, and Saul answered, the troops brought them from the Amalekites and spared the best sheep, goats, and cattle in order to offer sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest we destroyed. Stop, exclaimed Samuel. Let me tell you what the Lord told, said to me last night. Tell me, he replied. And then he rehashes everything the Lord re- responded to Samuel. And prior to, prior to chat, verse 13, you have this moment where God shows up to Samuel and says, I, have, I regret that I have made Saul king. And, and it's in this short conversation between God and Samuel, there are tears. There's, there, that's where Samuel weeps bitterly. It's what causes Samuel to then go and find Saul. And then you have this exchange. Um, and then Samuel rehashes what God showed him and what God told him about the regret. Um, and, and then Samuel says this, which I actually think was a really, I really like it and think it's a significant part uh, of, of the conversation. Um, Samuel, in his rejection and his communication of God's rejection and regret of Saul being king, um, he then kind of provides some clarity, but also like a very strong rebuke. Uh, and this is simply this. It says this in verse 22 and 23. It says, Then Samuel said, Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and defiance is like the wickedness and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. And we have these moments as chapter 15 winds down, where you get this begging moment where Saul is, I have sinned, forgive me, I need you to come back with me to reaffirm me as king among the people. You can see Saul is this, like the way that I picture it, and whether this is accurate or not, I don't know, but this is how I picture it. It's this grasping at straws, please don't reject me, give me a second chance, please come with me, reaffirm me as king so that everyone still follows me and no one gives up on me. Um, and, and the way I kind of view it is he, he lived so much for the approval of people um, that he actually ended up getting rejected by the one who mattered most, which sounds so like preachy pastor, like, hey, here's a cool phrase. But it is that you see this tension throughout the majority of Saul's life where he is fighting and living for the approval and not wanting to be deserted, not wanting to be rejected, that he got so much caught up in that tension that he ended up getting rejected by God himself because he was not faithful to do what he was told to do. He didn't stay obedient. He he convinced himself that what he was doing was right and that would honor God. Uh, and so we have this moment that's very, that's it's a very sad moment that um, Saul is then rejected as king. Uh, and then the story continues and shifts into uh, a different character that Evan, you get to talk about now. Oh man, we are getting to certainly the most famous king of Israel ever, but he's not king yet, but we're going to, we're going to be introduced to a, you know, some nobody named David. Uh, so some, <laughs> some, some nobody named some David. guy, uh, listeners, I should also say that, uh, this week, this week where, I guess this next week is when it starts, but we are going to do this year. We've been 
you know, kind oh, of beating around <laughs> the bush for a little bit. We will be doing a definitive tier ranking of all of the kings of Israel and Judah. And Aaron, I don't know where you land on this, but I feel like Paul, not, not Paul, Saul. I think Paul. I think Paul was a great. Sucks as a king. Uh, no, just kidding. I think Saul is kind of the definition of right in the middle of like where he's almost where I would put the uh, the mark for that. And my logic there, and we'll-, we'll You make Saul the baseline. Yeah, we'll-, we'll um, We'll re we'll hash this hmm, out off interesting. air, but in my head, the tiers are kind of like the great kings of Israel, the good kings of Israel, and then there's the okay ones. Then and there's for, the Saul. Yeah. And for me, those three are like the, hey, did they worship Yahweh? Like that's like, that's the top, that's the top half of the tier list, if you will. And then below, and it's for me, Saul goes right into that bottom category of like, not a great king, disobeys a bunch, really screws up. But at least he didn't lead the people away from Yahweh worship. You know, there is he has <laughs> uh, that going for him. And then below that, that's you have, he still had Samuel. Yeah, I mean, you know, hey, uh, you know, David and Nathan. Solomon had some prophet, and look what he did. But then I feel like did the, he have a prophet? No, maybe I don't know. I don't remember. We'll get to that here in a little yeah. bit. Um, and then after that, you have the lower tiers of like they're leading people away from worship of God. And then you have the tier below that where it's like they're literally sacrificing children. I feel like those are kind of the tiers that we're going to go through. We will uh, we'll we'll figure out exactly what's going to look like. But this year, every time a king dies, we are going to place. We're going to rank them. Yep, we're going to rank them. And, and we've done this before. Uh, but Evan and I have talked. We forget year over year exactly where we place them. Um, but this year, we have a chalkboard in this room where we're recording, so we're going to put it on a chalkboard so we can. It will be we can see it visually. It and will it'll be, be a constant reminder. Definitive. Don't worry, listeners. It'll be set in chalk. Ex- at least definitive, according to me and Aaron. So there you go. <laughs> uh, anyway, so but let's let's not let's not talk about all that right now. Uh, so we have such an overinflated self sense of self because <laughs> uh, we're so smart, listeners. We know how much you care about our rank, our tier ranking <laughs> of the kings. Uh, all right. So now that Saul has been rejected by Yahweh, Samuel is told to go to Bethlehem, which is a you know a city that's famous for something else. You know, another famous person is born there later on. So I wonder who that could be. Uh, One of Jesse's sons will be chosen by God to be the new king. So Samuel goes and he looks and you can kind of get the vibe that he's trying, he's thinking, he's thinking through the lens of Saul again. So Saul is, you know, he, Saul looks like a king. He's taller than everyone else. He's a mighty warrior. It's like, okay. Uh, He looks at Jesse's firstborn son and he's like, oh, this is the guy. This guy is the king. And then God's like, nope. And it kind of goes down the line. Um, eventually, Jesse's like, well, I guess I have one more son. He's out in the fields, which I always took that as like Jesse is um, like kind of just a jerk to David. But I think it's more about like no one is expecting the seventh son to be the one who's chosen to be king. So like, yeah, like one of the sons needs to be out there and taking care of stuff. So like, yeah, that son is the one who's going to be doing it. Uh, but that one is David. And so David comes in and God is like, this is the one. And so Samuel anoints him as the future king of Israel. He is not king yet. And nope. as we'll see, it's... Uh, it takes a while. Yep, to, he'll get there. Yeah, he'll get there eventually. Spoilers, but uh, it takes a little bit to to reach that. Uh, David is also known uh, for his six skills with the lyre. That's L Y R E. It's like a little harp, and that is important because we're told that the spirit of Yahweh had departed from Saul, and an adversarial spirit from Yahweh had taken its place. And so Saul is constantly afflicted, and one of the only things that seems to be able to relieve this is David playing on his lyre. So he, uh, you know. He comes over from the palace and he's he's well known enough that people and granted Bethlehem is close to Jerusalem, but still he's well known enough that people are like, hey, you know who's really good with that? That son of Jesse. And Saul's like, oh yeah, bring him over. Sweet. So David's a little bit of a rock star, I guess. Or whatever that equivalent is. I I don't know if I ever remembered that David became Saul's armor bearer here. 
Yeah. Is it Armor Bearer officially? Or? Yeah. The, Did I miss that? Oh. I'm pretty sure it said Armor Bearer because I remember like, oh, I didn't know that. Uh, but I, there was a very distinct moment where, I mean, I can look it up again, but um, I remember reading it and highlighting like, oh, I don't know if I ever remembered that. Crazy. And I don't remember if it was in 16 here, if it was a little bit later, but I'm pretty sure once he was introduced to David, that there was this this conversation of him being the armor bearer. So hmm, crazy. Well, I guess that, while, while you look that up, I'll, I'll continue on. Uh, so after this, surprise, surprise, Israel and Philistia are at war once again. Uh, this time is a little bit different, however. There is a literal giant named Goliath. And I say literal giant because he was literally a giant. So Nine feet tall. Yep. Uh, and he is acting as the champion of the Philistines. And he challenges anyone in Israel to one-on-one combat. Um, this is actually a, f- a pretty famous... Um, it's a, it's a thing that happens all throughout history. This isn't just something that's made up for stories. Uh, famously, Rodrigo Diaz de Vivar was, uh, he challenged in one-on-one combat and, you know, won some, he won some battles for King Sancho of Castile. So anyway, I've been looking into El Cid recently, but you don't care. And you're just looking. No, I'm things. trying to make no, sure that I'm not fine. lying to my it's listenership. It's fine. I was telling a stupid history story. Anyway, uh, so everyone is understandably- Wait, did you say something? Yeah. Just kidding. <laughs> everyone is understandably afraid of this giant uh, and they don't think that they can win. And all of a sudden the man steps forward to say that they don't have to be afraid of the giant because they have Yahweh on their side. Aaron, where have I heard that before? <laughs> like, I never, I never caught I don't this. remember. This really does parallel the Joshua and Caleb story where they go into, remember, the, the 12 spies of Israel under Moses, they go in to the land. I'm all right, of, by the way. Are you all right? Verse Armor. 21 of chapter 16. Wow. I when just, David came to Saul and entered his service, Saul loved him very much and David became his armor bearer. I totally missed it. Boom, shakalaka. Oh my gosh. Maybe uh, it's not that way in the ASV though. I don't, I'm sure it's something like that. Now I'm curious. Uh, but anyway, so to remember back to the 12 spies of Israel, they go into the land of Canaan and they say, hey, we can't defeat them. They're huge. Um, what do we do? And the Joshua and Caleb are the ones who are like, no, we, ha- we have God on our side. Like, did you guys not just see the Red Sea part? Like, we don't have to be afraid of these people. Uh, but unfortunately, the other 10 went out. And in this situation, all of Israel is afraid. They're like, we can't take on this giant. And David's like... We, we have God on our side. What are you talking about? And so David goes out. Uh, there's a famous scene where Saul tries to put him in his armor, but it's too big. And so that's not going to work. Um, David is originally, he's going to go out with a sword, you know, some weapons, because that makes sense. That's what you would normally want. And then he says, you know what? No, we're going to go sling. And uh, I'm going to go take five rocks. I'm going to find the perfect sling rocks. And that's what we're going to do. And again, listener, when you think of sling, don't think slingshot like we have today. Think like (laughs) it's literally kind of like a big rope with a pouch in the middle that you're spinning around your head and then you're letting go of one side. Uh, We know that David is pretty good with it because he's fending off wolves and attackers to his sheep. But that's still, man, the the guts. Well, and it's funny because I had this thought when Saul put him in his armor is there's part of me that like... Did Saul want to figure out a way to, because he knew whoever defeated Goliath would get the accolades and the, and the glory. And, and, and I, I believe, I could be wrong on this part, but I do believe um, it was the king's responsibility in this moment specifically to go and fight on behalf of his people. I believe. Um, and maybe if it's not, then I remember that there's there's some indication there. So all of that to say, like when Dave, when Saul puts David in his armor, I wonder, and this is me just wondering as I'm reading through it, was Saul trying to steal some of the glory and the accolades of Goliath's defeat if David followed through and defeated him? Could he have then attached and rode the coattail saying, hey, yeah, my armor is what saved him. My armor is what he used. Like there's part of me that wonders if there was that piece to it as well. But yeah, anyways, maybe that could be a little it was, bit. It was interesting to read and just, because again, looking at Saul's life in a snapshot of this, it's it's challenging and convicting to think about 
how Saul would have acted in this instant um, because he knew at this point he was rejected. He knew at this point that, so could he have been grasping at straws to try and figure out a way um, to, to still have some glory before yeah. his kingship leaves? Anyways. Is that, is, that, is that in the back of his head somewhere? That's a good question. Uh, so as David steps onto the battlefield, we get this, I mean, just sweet passage. This <laughs> is in chapter 17, starting verse 41. And the Philistine moved towards... Uh, moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. I like that. I like to think that that's what was going through Goliath's head of like, he's such a kid. Kind of handsome though. <laughs> it's just kind of weird. Uh, and the Phil- easy on the eyes. Yeah, you know whatevs. Uh, it's, it's a bummer. I'm going to kill him. Yeah. And the Philistine said to David, "Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks?" And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, "Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field." And then David said to the Philistine, "You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin." But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that the all that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel." And that his assemb- and that this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into our hand. Like, Amen. Oh my God, what a speech! Yeah. What a speech! Like it's so great. Um, and David is like, you know, like I think sometimes I this is for me personally. I think sometimes I focus on the failures of David a little bit too much, and I forget about like the triumphs are really great yeah. too. Like this is this is an incredible moment. And he said- Well, and everything is pretty legit up until Bathsheba, right? Yeah. yeah. The way he leads, the way he 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 walks and trusts God, the God, like just the, 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 the bold anointing that he walks in up until Bathsheba is remarkable. Yeah. Uh, which makes the, that, that fall even more sad to read about. It's Anyways. true. And I, but yes, I just, it's an incredible speech. I just can't help but think that David fully understands the lesson of judges, whereas no, the Lord fights for us. We're not fighting with spears. We're fighting with the Lord. Yep. He is He is going out in front of us. And so, I, yeah, the confidence, the moxie, it's great stuff. So when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. I'm disappointed you ended it there. You want me to talk about the head? The oh, head come on, apart? man. Like oh. he, he takes Goliath's sword out of it. She kills him with it and then cuts off his head that's and fair. takes his head back to the camp. I guess I paraphrase. Come on. That's fair. All right. So to paraphrase, yeah, what Aaron just said is he, because remember, <laughs> David didn't bring a sword. And so he pulls Goliath's sword out, cuts off his head, brings it back to the camp. The Philistines are in a panic. They get routed. It's a whole thing. Yeah, so it's a big deal. Way to go. But way he, to go, he David. He hacks Goliath's head off. You got you, you love to see it. Oh, you, you love to see it. Listen, they make movies about like Noah and things like that, which are not biblically accurate and entirely. But what? They they make movies like that, like 
They got to make a movie about this. Come on, David, man. Like, yeah, David would be a sweet movie. That's anyways. for sure. All right. So David, Samuel. David, understandably, he gains a ton of fame and notoriety from this. Uh, he comes before Saul and Jonathan instantly sees him as a friend worthy of his respect. L- the literal phrase there is that his, their souls are united in that mm-hmm. moment. Um, and this is where we see J- David and Jonathan, David and Jonathan, <laughs> David and Jonathan have an incredible friendship. Um, and again, like I just, I always wonder about what would, what would King Jonathan have been like? Cause he's, mm-hmm. he's a real good dude. So that, uh, that's a weird way to describe a biblical character, I guess. But <laughs> He's such a good dude. But you know, and so the people of Israel, uh, they're making their songs. And so the number one hit on the charts of Jerusalem that year was David has slain his thousands or Saul has slain his thousands, but David is tens of thousands, yep. which Saul was like... And it becomes a world-renowned song. Yeah, they're just they're just banging that drum up all the later. time, and uh, Saul's Saul's really disappointed in that. Uh, and so Saul invites David to marry his daughter. You could just that, see him like a little five year old. They say that he David kills ten thousand. Saul has thousands. I've killed I've killed tens of thousands in my day. Yeah. I don't know why that's the Saul voice. It's just funny. <laughs> I could just see him throwing a fit. Um, so one of the deals of hey, if you if you defeat the Philistine, you get to marry my daughter. So Saul's like, hey, why don't you uh, why don't you marry my daughter? And David's like, oh no, I I couldn't possibly. And then Saul, so Saul marries off his first daughter to someone else. Mm-hmm. And then second daughter, he's like, hey, David, this is, why don't Here's you- another chance. Yeah, why don't you marry my daughter? And so at that point, it comes out that the reason David is reluctant is because he doesn't have the money to pay a dowry. And so back- Which I forgot all about this too. Yeah. So back then, uh, and actually really until very recently in history, the the tradition was, is when you, when you married a woman, you paid a price- um, to the family of that yep. woman. And the idea there is you're showing that you understand what she is worth, that when you're, when you're marrying someone, you're not going into this lightly and you're paying, you're paying a price to be able to do this. Uh, and so Saul's like, oh, David, no problem. You don't have any money? No problem. I would like a hundred Philistine foreskins. <clears throat> and yeah, it's like, okay. Sorry. Okay, Saul, so, like you couldn't pick, you know, even heads. Fingers? You know, you thumbs? You could Ears? Anything else. Come on, Saul. But that is what he Eyeballs. wants. Uh, and so David run. David is like, okay, cool. And Saul's kind of in the back of his head thinking like, hey, maybe he'll die doing this. this that, that was the whole point. Isn't that a win-win for everyone? Uh, so yeah, Saul is very much kind of thin-galling Baron here. Is well, the and it's at this point too where I think you begin to re- – he begins – uh, he doesn't begin, but he's realized at this point, David's probably next. David is already gaining favor of the people. God has already rejected him. God has already said you will not have a, a son on the throne and so Saul has all these things in recollection and in his mind. And so, of course, he's trying to – he's hoping David, David will get killed by the Philistines. I only want 100. If you go up against 100 guys, you're going to die. No problem. Um, and so that's part of the way that things play out here is David is tasked with what seems like an impossible situation. Um, and David follows through with it. He's going for it. But not just 100. Oh, he comes back with over 200 Take that, skins. And so uh, eventually, yeah, David marries Michael. And uh, speaking of kind of talking about people after their fall, David and Michael's relationship is really cool. So uh, they're very much in love. And Saul yeah. is Saul's getting increasingly frustrated because he wants to kill David. And he's and, and he, the two people, theoretically, he should be able to trust the most, his kids, they are both like, yeah, no, we're not helping with yeah. that. Um, and so Jonathan convinces his father to swear not to harm David. And so that's part of his whole thing, uh, which Saul immediately goes back on. So not- Thanks, Saul. Not, Thanks, Dad. Not great. Um, and then- both, But Jonathan's not the wiser either. Jonathan doesn't realize his dad is not- That's right. Yeah. And that, com- that comes later. Yeah. But, th- but that's significant as well. It's like Saul, yeah, yeah, no problem, Jonathan. Hey, go kill him, please. Like there is this reality that Saul is has a vendetta against David- um, and he goes back on his word against with his son. Well, yeah, clearly Jonathan has faith in his father 
that he should not have. Yep. Uh, so that's a bummer. And that's, that's, that's sad too. Um, and then Michael, so Jonathan saves David a little bit here. Michael also does the same. So uh, they both prove their love and their loyalty to David. Uh, and Michael lowers David from a rope. So Saul is sending people to their house to kill them. And David under, understands that this is happening. And so Michael helps him to escape. And then she kind of makes up a David, I don't know, like a David life-size doll. And then puts it up in the like, <laughs> Takes oh. a, a household idol. It's like, oh no, he's he's sleeping, guys. Don't come back later. This is that's totally David on the bed right there. So I don't pay know. no attention pay. to the, the stone made. Is that idol. a rope tied out of your window? God, guys, that's I'm no, drying it. I'm yeah. drying the blanket. Seriously. <laughs> um, so, anyways, that's what goes down. And this is where we get our second psalm of the year. We're gonna get a lot of psalms. Yes, oh, they're <laughs> coming. Yeah, they're coming up. Uh, we're gonna have it. I think we're actually hitting quite a bit this next week. If I'm, uh, maybe it's a couple weeks. Anyways, yes, they're coming. So after David uh, escapes and after Michael helps him escape, he writes Psalm 59. So this is our first chronological psalm of David. Remember, our first psalm was written by Moses. Uh, and this psalm has two main themes. Uh, it's number one, David's desire for God to punish those who are after him, which is the theme of a lot of the psalms. Yep. Uh, and then the second theme is David seeing Yahweh as his true strength and his fortress, uh, which it fits right along with the, the David and Goliath speech mm-hmm. where God, he's, he's understanding God is the one who I take refuge in. God is the one who is fighting these battles. So just to read a little, a little passage of it, we're not gonna read the whole thing, but this is verses 11 through 17. Uh, it says, kill them not lest my, sorry, it's starting off. He's referring to the people who are coming after them. He says, kill them not lest my people forget, make them totter by your power and bring them down. O Lord, our shield for the sin of their mouths, the words of their lips, let them be trapped in their pride for the cursing and lies that they utter, consume them in wrath, consume them till they are no more that they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. Selah. Each evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. They wander for food and growl if they do not get their fill, but I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning, for you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. O my strength, I sing praises to you, for you, O God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. So I guess we should say this too. I don't know if we brought this up with the last psalm, but since we're getting into the psalms, when you see the word Selah, so that's S-E-L-A-H, it's always like kind of just off to the side on the right. What that means is stop and pause. Yeah. So the idea there is it's a thought. The thought is kind of completed. Ref- don't read on to the next until you kind of reflect on it for a little bit and then move forward. So that's what that means there. Mm-hmm. It's a Hebrew word. Uh, but yeah, Psalm 59, really beautiful. It's just kind of talking about the idea that David, again, at this point, fully understands that God is the one who is going to make things happen. He's He does not need to take things into his own hands, which we'll see uh, next week how seriously that David takes that particular aspect yep. of this as well. But David sees Yahweh as his fortress, as well as his sword and shield. So really cool. Yeah. And then we see uh, in chapter 19 here, we see actually David continues his fleeing from Saul. Um, and and it's interesting, like this is a, this is a moment that I think I've read and I remember just reading past it oftentimes. So, but this time around, like I kind of just stopped and was like, okay, what's really going on here? Um, Saul was sending. Saul had found out that David fled to uh, Ramah, where Samuel is, uh, and Saul was like, okay, like we know who where he's at. I'm going to send people there to go get him and bring him back. Uh, and every every group of guys that he sends, every agent or whatever that you will from Saul, ends up going and starts prophesying. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon them. They start prophesying. And then it happens multiple times. And then Saul's like, fine, I'll go do it myself. And he goes himself. And then the Spirit of God comes upon 
Saul, and then Saul begins to prophesy. And it's kind of a weird moment uh, in, in trying to, okay, what's really, like, why is that so significant? Uh, and I appreciate the study Bibles. If we, if I can't, if we said it before, we can't say it enough. Study Bibles are worth the investment. Um, For sure. And the quote that I, that I, I wrote here is, is this, it, because it just provides so much clarity to what's really going on, um, because Saul can't get to David. Um, because he, he, he is empowered by spirit and, and prophesies. And I love it. It says the spirit of God overruled Saul's intention, intentions, just as he had done with the king's agents. So Saul was prophesying and he intended to go and kill David. Um, but the spirit of God caused him to prophesy. And then he says, and then the, the, the CSB study Bible says this, that the one who sought to kill God's servant now spoke God's praises. Um, and I just love like the, the flipping it all on the head thing. Um, and so we see in chapter 19 here, starting verse 18, you see, that Samuel is, or not, not Samuel, sorry, Saul is trying to kill David. When he goes to where to goes to Rama, where David is, the Spirit of God comes upon them, they prophesy, and they go away. And so God, through the work of the Holy Spirit, thwarts Saul's intentions to kill David uh, by a, a pretty remarkable supernatural react, or act. You see in chapter 20, uh, this is where you see the friendship of David and, and Jonathan be the most profound. Um, and I and I want to say this very carefully. Um, there, there's been moments in this text where I have heard that there, the allusion to a romantic relationship between David and Jonathan. That's not the case. It's not true. It's not accurate. It's reading something into the text that is not biblically accurate or true. Um, but their deep friendship, there is this deep bond. Um, and and it's even as Evan you said earlier, like their souls were united. There is this deep friendship and brotherhood that exists between David and Jonathan, um, and even to the point where again I've heard like the kiss that they share that's documented in the text is like a romantic kiss. No, it's not. In that day and age, whenever you saw someone who you loved dearly, Lee, when you saw them arrive or you or they were leaving, you would kiss them. It's and Paul alludes to it. Well, he would, greet yeah. them with a brotherly kiss. It's just in other parts of the world. Yeah, <laughs> like not. Yeah, oh, it's true. It's still yeah. today. That that's, a, that's yeah. a very normal greeting in many parts. So, of the world. and I'm, I'm just I just want to be clear because what I don't like is I don't like when we take and I and I kind of went on my little soapbox last week when I talked about Ruth. Um, and I just don't like reading things into the text that are not there. Um, because here's the deal: we can take anything and read anything into it. But what's really happening in this text is not a romantic picture of a relationship between Jonathan and David. Uh, but it's 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 revealing the depth and the bond and the friendship that exists. It's it's someone that you're very close to that you're crying and weeping when they move away. That's the bond that's ha- that's had here. Even to the point where Jonathan and, and even Michael are are protecting David against Saul and Saul's intentions. And in chapter twenty here, this is where we realize Jonathan still doesn't know Saul's intentions to kill David. And and so as David is uh, like appealing to Jonathan saying, please understand your father's trying to kill me. Jonathan's like, no way he would tell me these things. Saul was withholding this information from Jonathan. So then David and Jonathan prepare a test. David says, hey, the new moon feast is coming, which is a multiple day feast that they would take time to celebrate. I should have looked up the feast. I I don't know if you know the feast of the moon, the new moon feast. I do not know if some. And so I apologize for not having that answer. Um, If you want to know, you can ask the question and we'll answer it at a later time. But all that to say, it's a multiple day feast uh, and David's seat is empty. And so the, the, the challenge or the the, cha- the test that David and Jonathan come up with based upon David is, hey, if your dad asks where I'm at, if he's missing me, tell him I had to urgently go to my family to offer a sacrifice and I've asked you and pleaded with you to let you go, let me go. 
Day one happens, Saul sees David's seat is empty. He thinks, oh, he must be unclean, so he won't be here to this at this feast. Then day two happens, and David still isn't there. And Saul finally asks Jonathan, hey, where's David? Where has he been? And that's when Jonathan tells him, David's test was simply this. If, if he is okay with your allowance for me to go to this sacrifice, then it means that he loves me and he doesn't have intentions to kill me. If he grows angry with you, then you'll know that he's out to kill me. So David or Saul asked Jonathan, Jonathan explains the whole situation. Hey, he pleaded with me to go to the family sacrifice. I let him go. Saul's reaction was one of anger. He actually calls, um, he actually derogatorily speaks about Jonathan's mom um, being a perverse and corrupt woman. uh, And he's angry at the fact that David's not there, which then Jonathan, and I think he hucks a a spirit Jonathan at that point too. Yeah. And he loses his mind a little bit. Yes. And so that's where Jonathan realizes Saul has it out for my dad has it out for my friend. And they they had set up this test and then set up a, a resolution of the test. David was going to hide at a rock at the next morning. After the feast, Jonathan went out with his servant, shot an arrow, and in essence communicated, hey, go away because it's it's true. Saul's going to kill you. Um, and so after the servant dis- goes back into town with the bow and arrow, Jonathan and David have these moment have this moment of like weeping together crying together uh, and and recognizing they might not see each other again. And their friendship is is stronger than ever because they realize now David is at risk to die because of Saul. And so Saul is unaware of what's happening. Jonathan send da- sends David away. And then we have in chapter 21, we have the, the conversation of uh, David is fleeing to Nob which is uh, where the, the, the sword of Goliath was put. He fled, didn't have armor, didn't have a sword, didn't have anything. So he's, he realizes, I have to have armor. I have to have a weapon. He gets the sword of Goliath, which is kind of a cool little uh, come back around with the circle where he kills Goliath with his own sword. And he, he, he lets it go. He doesn't need it. And then he gets the sword back. I, which dig, I, thought it. Was cool. I dig that. Yeah. So it's kind of like a fun little like, hey, that's a cool moment. Uh, and then he goes to Gath. And uh, King Akish uh, is the the people. This is where the the song, the the record hitting wonder of Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. David goes to Gath looking for uh, refuge. The people of Gath are like, hey, isn't this David? Isn't he the one that they sing about that Saul kills his thousands and David is ten thousand? It was an international hit. This yeah. song, and all of a sudden David realizes in these moments, like, oh, my life is a, is a threat. And so King Akish comes out and David acts insane. He lets drool and spittle come down his beard. Uh, and these moments happen and it, it allows King Akish to be like, are you going to bring another crazy man into my, my city? I don't need another one of these. Don't I have enough crazy men already? There's no way this is David. So his, his uh, cunningness is rewarded with refuge. He doesn't, he, his life is not on the line. Uh, and that's where the, the ending of our week's reading for Samuel comes into play until we get to Psalm 34. This is really stupid, but before you get to Psalm 34, all yeah. I can think of when you say that the David's like, you know, kind of pretending to be a madman stuff, if I was really classy, I would say, you know, it reminds me of Hamlet. Uh, but really, <laughs> it re- but really, it reminds me of, um, uh, it reminds me of the scene in The Office where Andy <laughs> is pretending to like, just be like a lowly, like he's spilling soup all over himself and stuff like that because yep. he knows like David yep. Walsh is coming in. That's that's my picture of David right now. So funny. Not it's proud true. of it, yep. but there it is. That's true. Uh, and so then we get Psalm 34 
um, which I love reading this right after he appears crazy uh, because that's the context of kind of what David is writing to. But the way that he writes, uh, you got to remember, David is is fleeing for his life. He has just lost his best friend. He's no longer with his wife. And he realizes, I'm all alone uh, to a degree. And so he's looking for refuge, but he says this, and I'm just going to read the first 10 verses of Psalm 34. Uh, but the context of which David is writing is in this moment of his life. And it says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will boast in the Lord. The humble will hear and be glad. Proclaim the Lord's greatness with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and rescued me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant with joy. Their faces will never be ashamed. The poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him from all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the person who takes refuge in him. You who are his holy ones, fear the Lord. For those who fear him lack nothing. Young lions lack food and go hungry. But those who seek the Lord will not lack any good thing. And we hear this psalm where God, uh, David is rejoicing in God's faithfulness and his provision and his protection. In the midst of, his, of, of having to flee everything he knew, we see this rejoicing and the trust and who God is, which is what sets David apart as a man after God's own heart, which is what sets David apart as a, as a king worth following up until Bathsheba. So, uh, but that's kind of where the week's readings end this week. Well, before we wrap up for this week, we do want to talk a little bit about what we learned today. Yeah, for me, I think the, the thing that stands out is really just the friendship of Jonathan and David and how like, I, I don't know, I, I, I've, I, I've been in thinking about friendship, I guess, a lot recently, um, just because like you, you walk through like really difficult things with your friends. And in the one sense, it's really hard to do that. In the other sense, it's really rewarding to be able to show love. It's, it's another way I've said it is um, I don't enjoy doing funerals as a pastor, hmm. but there is something about it where it's kind of being able to show love to a family in that specific situation, yeah. I think is is one of the um, it's it's just one of the best ways that we can show and care about people, and so I think with Jonathan, it's it's just being able to look at the way that he loves David, the way that even though he knows he's going against his father, even though he knows that it, 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 Jonathan understands that David is taking his birthright, mm-hmm. um, and 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 yeah, that's a big deal. Yeah, that's not something we should just skip past. Like Jonathan, by all rights of. Um, human code of law should be the next king. And he knows that David is going to be that. And yet still, um, he supports him to the very end. And I think for me, it's just kind of a a convicting thought of how well do I love my friends? Um, the people in my life. Who, do you want me to answer that for you? Thank you. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but yeah, the, pe- the people in my life who, who are my close friends, like, do I do a good job of loving them well? Um, do I sacrifice for them when when that is needed to be done, or do I kind of just you know come in and out of lives and things yeah. like that? So it, it is kind of just it's a it's an important thing for us to wrestle through, and I think it's a great example of the way Jonathan and David both love each other yeah. and are and are great friends with each other is something to emulate. Yeah, that's really good. Uh, and I mean, mine my, my the thing that kind of is just a reminder to me or a challenge to me is um, David lost a lot uh, when he. He, and he didn't, I say it this way, he did nothing wrong uh, and he lost a lot. And I feel a little bit like Job, like Job's, the reflection on Job's like, but Job didn't do anything wrong. He lost a lot too. But like David, David served humbly. David served diligently. 
David didn't complain that we know, and I'm sure he did in moments, but at the end of the day, like David, David's heart and mind and, and everything he focused on was the fact that I'm, I'm living to honor God. That's what I'm doing. Uh, and so I, I love the way that we ended this week's readings just by this, by reading Psalm 34. Um, because in the context with which he was writing, there was nothing to be rejoicing about except, except the, the fact that he was, he was, he found a place of refuge so he didn't, and he didn't lose his life. Um, and that's a big deal. So I'm not trying to minimize that, but I just, I just appreciate and am challenged by the circumstances I face that I feel like are great, that I, the loss or the tragedy or the challenge that I feel or I navigate is, can I really say, taste and see that the Lord is good? Can I really say that those who find their joy in him lack no good thing? Can I really say those things in the hardest moments of my life? Uh, and, I, and I want my answer to be yes. I want to be able to say those things. And so I think it's a reminder of holding these psalms and holding these situations very closely and being reminded of the fact that God is who he says he is. He does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that we can have confidence in him just like David had confidence in him. And I think that's a significant thing. There you be. Well, this week we did not have a question come in, so we're actually going to wrap it up right there. So as a reminder, we are a podcast of The Grove Church, but we are not the only resource of The Grove Church. You can find all of our other resources on our website, grove.church, under the media tab. And if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you would like to financially contribute to the ministry that The Grove Church does, you can also do that on our website. There's a give button in the upper right-hand corner. And hey, thank you all so much for listening. Happy Easter. Happy Easter.